Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, Amy and I are just going to hang out and chat. We had a guest that unfortunately had something come up. So this is going to be casual developer chats. I don't know if we'll have a brand for this, but we're going to hang out and talk. We are live streaming, so we'll respond to comments and questions and all the things. But we're going to hang out and have fun and just kind of talk about the stuff that we're working on. And I guess this is a time where we usually do our intros. So Amy, go for it. Can I talk now? Yes, you can talk. <laughs> we were fighting before this about who was going to talk when. So now it's your turn to talk, Amy. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton and I am the director of design at Zeal. What's up, everyone? My name is James Q. Quick. And I am a full-time technical content creator. Cue the intro music. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we're joined by three fabulous sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. Zeal is a software consultancy and they are hiring. And Dato CMS is a performant headless CMS. More from each of these later in the show. So Amy, what are you up to? What am I up to? I went to the doctor this morning. I told James oh, I had gosh. a toe update. <laughs> uh, this is so gross, but it brings our relationship to the next level. So I got a runner's toe with the half marathon that I ran like two months ago. So they had to take it off. And I went this morning and they said it looks great. So nice. it just looks That's good. Well, I think it looks disgusting, but they were like, yeah, we look at these things every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that's good. Anyways, but okay. This is why I brought it up though. Cause this is interesting to me. They said, do you have any expectations about how fast your toenail will grow back? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> I have no idea. So they said, we tell everybody nine months to 12 yeah. months, nine months to a year. I feel like that's, I feel like that's ridiculous. But I was going to guess like a year. Yeah crazy so you can't go to the beach i mean i guess you can but oh we i did go to the beach but i mean i had it wrapped up in a band-aid mm. um i was just said, worried about you scaring people with it oh well, yeah well <laughs> you know right now it just i'm not gonna say that never mind but i'll spare everybody yeah so yeah, let's change the subject to something more controversial uh moth ev moth eve said let's talk about the github Copilot controversy that's a good one yeah, I don't know if I had picked up that it was a controversy, although I was confused by this when I first saw it because it, to me, came out of nowhere, but apparently this had been like communicated. By the way, Selfish, shout out, promo. I recorded a video on this exact same topic that will go live mm. Tuesday if you're listening live. If you're on the podcast, go and check out my YouTube channel, James and Quick. But the controversy here to introduce this is GitHub Copilot is now out of like technical preview, which means you can have a 60-day free trial but after your trial, it's $10 a month. So I guess the controversy is, do we feel like Microsoft should be charging for GitHub Copilot? Are we shocked that they're charging? And then would you pay for it yourself? And Amy, I'll let you kick that off. I just think it's interesting that you just said Microsoft is charging. Like you went to the parent company instead of saying GitHub is charging you. So I don't know the answer to this. Is this a specific GitHub Pro I mean, it makes sense because it's GitHub Copilot, but is, is this project specifically out of the GitHub team? I don't know if that's, that's true or not. It may well, be, it may so, very well be. What's interesting is I haven't really used GitHub. I, well, I have not at all. There's no, have not really. I just have not used GitHub Copilot. I've used Bitbucket and I've used GitHub. So the point that I was trying to make though was I hadn't used it yet. And so I saw mm -hmm. this and I was like, well, I need to try it out and decide. And 
have an opinion, but I don't know if I didn't turn it on right. I haven't seen anything come up. I'm like, I thought I was supposed to write my code for me. <laughs> I see nothing. Something's not working then. Yeah. Yeah. But I've heard you say that it's fantastic. Wes Boss was saying it was fantastic. It's worth mm. $10. So I feel like it should be great. I didn't turn it on at the beginning because I was also like, I want to write my own code, but I also don't want to like make it hard on myself. Old grouchy developer. I don't, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I don't want to be an old grouchy developer. Okay. So here's the thing that's interesting though about the controversy. Because I was reading opinions about it and it said that the controversial part is that it is leveraging open source mm, and yeah, monetizing yeah. other people's projects that are open source. And so that's what makes it controversial. Not the fact that they're charging money for mm -hmm. a product, but that they are leveraging other people's work and they're basically like kind of pirating or... I don't know what you call it, but... Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I always forget that perspective because I don't care like i just haven't gone down that mental path of like actually dissecting that but i guess like west boss for example creates course content and people ask can i use this in my project and his answer is like yes you probably don't want to copy and paste this into your own thing right because that's not going to be unique for you on a resume or anything but like it's open source and so it is an interesting thing and actually we got a comment in the chat saying but it's open source. And I think that does totally make sense because there's companies that make money off of public data all the time. Like this is mm -hmm. just public it's data. Public. And if you don't want that to happen, I don't actually know, does GitHub ignore private repos? Because that would be something to consider. Like, could you make a specific decision to not support that project by making your repo private? I don't know. That's a good question. I feel like they would have to. Also the terms, the site terms, I'm sure it's in there the site terms of like using GitHub. Like, yeah. And the yeah. other side is, are you paying for GitHub? So there's a whole mentality mm -hmm. of if you're not paying, then you are the product. So, you know, I yeah. can understand people being yeah. more upset if they're paying money to keep their stuff private or paying to use their service. Otherwise GitHub has to find some way to like monetize mm -hmm. your code or have the ability to, I mean, they're hosting everything for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they definitely have like, they have free tiers. They've got enterprise accounts. Yeah. They're huge. Like they make money off that. Someone commented in the chat that it should only be based on public repos, which I think it has to be. Cause if you had some sort of secret sauce and then I was using mm -hmm. GitHub Copilot and then I wrote a comment to say like, generate this thing with the most efficient algorithm that no one else has ever done except for this one private repo. Oh, yeah. Like that would be ridiculous. Like I'd be so yeah. pissed if that was my secret sauce. Dropping in Google's. I know. Yeah. Like here's our algorithm for how search works. <laughs> oh, someone else. This is kind of interesting too from Cynthia is commenting. They're giving it free to students, but not free to teachers. So the two things I saw was free to students. And then and this is vague, like maintainers of popular open source projects. That's kind of vague. I mm -hmm. like the support of students. I hadn't thought about the teacher perspective too, because a lot of times you'll see students and teachers get similar discounts or packages or whatever through different products. So I hadn't thought about the teacher aspect of that. Thinking about the kind of free to students, not to teachers thing. Someone commented also, it'd be nice if you could do some sort of tier to get GitHub Pro and Copilot in one, which Copilot, I don't know if we clarified this, is $10 a month. So we just had a conversation maybe before we started officially recording where you were paying for a teleprompter app for $10 a month mm -hmm. and it felt like a lot. Some of it's the value and the frequency of use. So you don't have real co-pilot experience 
to be no. able to talk to whether or not you think it's that valuable. Right. But if I'm using it every day, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the best thing, so I have Text Expander installed on my computer and I have mm -hmm. Alfred installed on my computer. Ooh, and you should move away from Text Expander. It's like way I, too expensive for what it does. Which is ironic because that's even less than what we're talking about. It's like 467. Somewhere around 40, 50 a year. Yeah. Here's the thing though. Text Expander sends me an email every month and says, you've saved yeah. an hour of your life this month or whatever from using Text Expander. And Alfred's the same thing. It's like, how many times did you trigger Alfred mm -hmm. today or this week or this month or whatever? So I think that's a point though to be made in terms of value is how much are you yeah. using it? So with teleprompter, we've had this conversation multiple times. <laughs> Every time I talk about my YouTube channel, I'm incredibly embarrassed to say that I have not published a video since October. So I'm not using this app that I keep paying for. Whereas like Copilot, if I'm using it every single day and it's writing, somebody said that it's writing five to 20 lines of code. So even if it's like simple things that it's just spitting out for me, that's beneficial if it's going to mm -hmm. save me hours of time in the long run. Yeah, so I'll give my general take. Again, I have a full video on YouTube by the time this is published for people that are interested. So you can go and check it out. So one, I published a video about GitHub Copilot before I used it, kind of expressing my skepticism because I've used Tab9 and things like that before. And I just feel like they get in the way more so than anything else. And I was kind of thinking it's great if they give you a snippet, but then if there's anything in there that you need to change, would it have been easier to just write it yourself? And that gain gets more and more marginal, I assumed. And then I used GitHub Copilot and I was freaking blown away. The sad part is I can't use it anymore just because I do so much content. I don't want to turn it on and turn it off when I record. So I don't use it, but I love it. it it's so much better of a job than I ever thought. And it's only going to continue to get better, which is good. So for me, I would pay for it if I were using it every day and I didn't have to worry about turning it off for recording content. Where I wouldn't use it is for entry-level developers because I feel like it would become a crutch and it would take away from learning journey, that learning path of just that reiteration of looking stuff up, writing it, et cetera. I wouldn't do that. Also for me on the recording, I think I did dispensable income and I had to correct like disposable income, like $10 a month. One, I hate doing monthly costs. I'd rather pay for something up front and have it for life. I don't like the subscription type model because I feel like I just add up all these things and it's just annoying. But anyway, I'm comfortable with disposable income and I'm comfortable with paying $100 upfront for that. So that not everyone is in that position. It's only been more recently that I haven't been super, super strict with what my personal budget is for the month and staying within that. And anyway, so I would do it now, but if people have concerns about $10 a month, that's totally understandable. And I'm really skeptical of doing stuff with $10 a month anyway, but here's the hack. Here's what I tell people the secret in there of how to get GitHub Copilot and have somebody else pay for it is to ask your work to do it. Like this is an expense for work. $100 a year is a relatively easy thing that you can go and then make that pitch to say, this saves me an hour a week in time. And if that's 52 hours, if you are $40 an hour and that's what your salary comes out to be, that's like thousands of dollars or whatever. Like I don't, I'm not going to do that math live, but that's plenty of money to offset the cost of $100 a year. So I highly encourage people, if it's something you're interested in, go and ask your employer to see if they will cover it for you. And usually if you can prove the value, that's something that they hopefully will support for you. So Builder Argus just said on that last point, using Copilot, if you're new, it has another side. So if Copilot makes good enough code, 
how many companies might be able to hire devs on the lower end of experience and still get good output. So if that works, then $10 is an amazing bargain. And what's fantastic <laughs> about that comment is that I work with Builder Argus. <laughs> so, oh, do you really? Yes. So now you know where the hiring process is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Copilot potentially being able to offset the newness of an entry-level developer, if that makes sense. I mean, it's like training wheels, right? I don't think anybody's going to say that because you have training wheels on your bike, you can't ever learn how to ride your bike. It's like a good kind of intro thing. And hopefully if you keep seeing the same patterns that it's suggesting over and over again, that you'll learn that. So it's really just an aid there. I mean, to his point, if it creates good code, then that's going to help in the code review process. I think I would disagree with that. I would expect more accepting what Copilot gives someone very early on and that not necessarily being the right thing, but that person not understanding why or mm -hmm. how it's not the right thing. So then you don't actually get that learning experience until the code review, which I would imagine could make that code review more difficult, right? If you're having to backtrack and now teach, this is not the right thing, or it's not exactly what we need here. And this is why I feel like you can get in situations where you're having to backtrack a little bit more than the progress that you made. Okay, let me just play devil's advocate here. How is that different than Stack Overflow? Because we do that all the time with Stack yeah. Overflow, copy paste. I think some of it's like the repetition of going to Stack Overflow. Like I talk a lot about if you're stuck on a problem and you spend more than 15 minutes on it, go and ask for help because it's just not going to help you. There's law of diminishing returns on investing that time and trying to debug something. So ask for help. And at least it's getting into the cycle of getting comfortable how to search Stack Overflow, how to filter through answers, how to search for the things that you're looking for. I think that's a positive experience. And I think it's, yes, you could copy early from Stack Overflow, but at least you've had to do some things to get there. I don't know. That is a good point though. How different is that experience really? The maybe one additional caveat to that or one additional thought is it would be so easy to just take a snippet from Copilot that I imagine alternatively, if you didn't have that, you would be slightly more likely to ask for help at least for mm -hmm. clarification on what you're doing versus just assuming that the stuff that Copilot gives you is quote unquote good or the exact right thing for that right situation. This is also coming from someone that hasn't used it. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I have nothing but super, super positive reviews for my time of you. Like I was really blown away because it was, I was working on different projects and it was just like, no, I'm cool. I know what you're doing. Like, <laughs> here's what you need. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I was not expecting that at all. Ken Jones is saying great points on both sides of the out. Yeah. And I like. Agreed. I but think, really, uh, you liked my points better, right? <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but I think kidding. like that's an impossible thing at this point to prove, right? Like we can both have our opinions and thoughts on what we think it would be, but neither one of us can prove that that would definitively be the case. And I think that would change for who the person is that's using it, who the senior developers are that are doing reviews and all the things along the way. And now it's time to take a second to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Dato CMS. Dato CMS is a complete and performant headless CMS built to offer the best developer experience and user friendliness in the market. One of the things I think is really interesting and neat on their website is if you hover on their Why Dato CMS tab in the nav bar, you see sections for developers, digital markers, and content creators. So it's got the entire audience covered. They also provide a rich CDN powered GraphQL API with real time updates, which is really neat. So all of you who love working with GraphQL and are looking for something that has real-time updates, this is really, really cool. 
They also provide a super flexible way to handle dynamic layouts and structured content and then have best in-class image and video support with progressive image loading out of the box. So if you're looking for a headless CMS that can help represent every member of your team, make sure to check out Dato CMS. So we had another question earlier on that I said I would come back to and it's what are your thoughts on Next.js? I do love Next.js. I've used it on multiple projects. So it's running on the current compressed FM site. It's running on the current self teach me site. I have a massive project that I just wrapped up a while back on it. So it's able to scale, which is fantastic. And I basically gotten to the point where I was using that instead of like create react app. Like anytime I wanted mm -hmm. to start up a react project, I was just reaching for next. We have started doing more at work with Redwood, but the stuff that we're using Redwood for is really a full stack application. So mm -hmm. the thing about Next is it's not providing that backend. You get to decide what you want to couple it with. So I mentioned a couple of marketing sites. Those are tied to Sanity. Actually, all of those are tied to Sanity, all the ones that I listed. So it's nice that it's not opinionated and that you can pair it with whatever you want for a backend. Whereas Redwood is, it's, I don't know, it's just a little bit different because you would probably tie it to a database. I mean, I guess technically you could tie it to Sanity, but that might be a little strange. But I think it's a great project. I imagine you could. Yeah, I'm sure you could. Yeah. I mean, you can tie it to third-party APIs. I just haven't yeah. done that. I've just always created my own database with it. You can also do Redwood without a backend, which I haven't done, but mm. it is possible to decouple it. Okay. So. And then we've been doing stuff with SvelteKit. So I've also done a few marketing yep. sites with SvelteKit, which is fantastic. So some of it just depends, I think, on whether you want to work with React, whether you want to work with Svelte, the extensiveness of the backend, are you creating something custom? It's just, I mean, we have so many great tools in our toolbox mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, I think Next was definitively my number one for a while. Because I had been on Gatsby and then I got to Next.js. Oh, for a while. Controversial. Well, I said definitively. So now there's just other things that I'm really... Are you leaning for Remix? Well, so I want to talk about Remix, but okay. just the idea of Next.js. Like, although there are alternatives like Redwood and Remix, I think Next.js has just been at the top of this category for long enough that it's going to be hard for anyone to really take its place or replace it. So I think Next.js is going to continue to be super, super popular. And that's exciting. You mentioned one thing about Next.js... I forget exactly how you phrase it, but I wanted to clarify. You mentioned something about Next.js and not being backend, but just to clarify. Oh yeah, there is that API. Yeah, functions folder. Yeah, you can yeah. do all of your backend stuff. Like you can have all your API endpoints and stuff and do full stack applications you. with Next.js, not as opinionated and cohesively as Redwood. So going to not the definitive number one anymore. Like I really enjoy SvelteKit. Like we both are just super big fans. I've been working every day on the everything Svelte demo, which we need to chat about and kind of get synced on. So that is definitely one of my like options. And then I'm now building out this project called Dev Yearbook. And this was after Render ATL, people were commenting on Twitter, like, so good to see you. See you next time. See you next year. And it's like, this sounds like people are signing yearbooks. So I wanted to run with that idea and just use it as like a learn in public opportunity, create content around it and all the things. And so that's what I'm doing. I started two days ago. I've streamed twice on the Planet Scale channel, twitch.tv slash Planet Scale. And starting really with just core remix, like all I've built in these two days is a sign up form with almost no styling for a newsletter. So people could, if you're interested in updates as I build this thing in public, you can sign up for this newsletter and I'll send updates. So I mentioned like in two days, I've only gotten that part done, there's just a lot in Remix that I'm trying to wrap my head around. 
And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think the learning curve and the adjustment from what we're used to or what we've gotten used to is just different. It's a little bit steeper. So I'm really trying to like understand what I'm doing and why as I start to learn stuff. So we'll see in a month or two months or however long, I think it'll be a totally different perspective. I may love it. It may be just like, here's another good option. I don't know what it's going to be like, but it is a fun kind of learning experience just in these two days. So looking forward to spending more time with Remix. Yeah, I don't have much experience at all. I started watching Scott Talinsky's course on Remix just so I could develop an opinion, but mm -hmm. didn't get very far. The nesting of layouts seems really interesting. And I do love yep. like their branding. So I will give them all that. So Next.js also just launched, I think the equivalent mm -hmm. functionality, because it was a little controversial that they didn't reference Remix as an inspiration for that, I think. So that's kind of interesting. But with that being potentially one of the key aspects of Remix that people like, and now Next.js has a comparable well, idea. Now it's like people are still more used to Next.js and they get that benefit. So it's almost an even harder move. I was going to say, it's not like Remix was the first framework to come up with nested layouts. I mean, you have that in SvelteKit. Do we? How does nested layouts? I don't even know. Do we have that? Because mm -hmm. I'm honestly still wrapping my head around like what that means. Yeah. So like with SvelteKit, you can have this basic layout and then in a folder, it will adopt whatever layout you've set. And you would have to have this what double underscore reset dot Svelte file. Which is now changed, by the way. Oh, I found that out when I went through the update. All their mm -hmm. breaking changes. But anyways, yep. you'd have that reset that would allow you to basically not start over, but create a different layout for that particular directory. So the fact that it can adopt those things, whereas say previously with Next, what I would do is I would create a layout component that I would wrap everything with. And then embed that. Yeah. So I definitely know that. I wonder if there's different implications with the way, because I think there's implications with Remix. Again, this is something I'm still learning, but there's implications where if you have these nested layouts, like if you, if you do something to submit a form from a nested layout, it can submit that form and not reload the entire mm -hmm. page, but just reload that component. I don't know if it works that exact same way with how the nested layouts works in SvelteKit. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about SvelteKit. I do know that I was looking at that functionality with Next that you're describing because one of the features that I wanted to add is a persistent audio player. So mm -hmm. as you navigate, like you would have, say you want to listen to the podcast on the site, you hit play, you go to a different page, it keeps playing. It doesn't yeah. like cut out or start over or whatever. You can just keep playing and navigate around the site, bebop around, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I know that the way that... I think the nested layouts work and i think there was a way around it even previously like with context but in mm -hmm. order to get that piece working yep and someone mentioned in the chat by the way that angular js had nested layouts 10 years ago <laughs> <laughs> which is no longer supported i can't remember when that was but angular js is no longer supported that may have been a couple years ago i can't remember have you ever done any angular okay. i did look at it a long time ago and be like oh that's fancy mm -hmm. and then <laughs> Yeah. not go any further than that. Let me take a brief moment and talk about the company that I work for, Zeal. They actually sponsor our podcast. They design custom applications and develop primarily in Rails and React. 
They're a remote first company. Even before the pandemic, they're based out of Southern Oregon, but I live outside of Nashville and we have team members across the entire country. But Zeal holds a special place in my heart because as I mentioned, I work there, but I can honestly say it's the best place that I've ever worked. And good news for you, they are hiring. So you could work with me. In particular, we are hiring a senior UI UX designer and front end developer. I'm pretty stoked about this position because you'll be on my team. We have some really fun initiatives planned for 2022. So you get to be a part of that. In general, our whole setup is pretty unique. So you can find more information on the website, codingzeal.com. And of course, I'll include a link in the description below. Do you want to hear about my morning, by the way? <laughs> is this a trick question? No, but I would like for you to say yes, so I can talk about it. <laughs> I'm going to say, what happens if I say no? And I'll yes. tell you anyway. Yes. Yes, go ahead for so it. Go yes, I would love to hear about your morning. <laughs> so I spent two hours, like literally two hours, redoing all cable management with my desk. Mm. Oh, yeah. You told me you were going to tell me about this. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the pictures on Twitter, but Brad Garapi had posted about his setup a while back. And I was actually at his house last week and I got re-inspired to do all this stuff again and like make it even nicer I and bet stuff. His setup is sick. Yeah, it's super, super clean. Like I feel like I can't see anything. And I think I have more individual things like cables and things to plug in, but he's still got a lot and he manages it perfectly. But he had this big like rack mounted surge protector basically. And it's got 14 or 15 total outlets on it. And so that's one thing that you can mount underneath your desk and plug nice. everything in. And so I had to rethink, nice. like I got rid of a couple things. I like organized everything and I took every single cable and mounted them under the desk if I needed to. I had to buy, I had like sticky zip ties before where it has a sticky thing to stick to the table and then the zip tie underneath, uh -huh. but they just weren't strong enough. So I'd had that a while back and then stuff just fell. So I had them looped all over the place. And this time I bought ones that screw in. So it's just a tiny screw. It screws in and now they're super, super secure. So I have all the stuff that runs underneath mounted. I've got my dock. My couch dock is sitting right in front of me. On top of it is like a USB hub that I can plug little things in if I need to. And then behind that, I have like two USB-C things coming into the cow digit that also have inputs on them for USB HDMI. So I have like my HDMI cable plugged in those and I have them like sticky taped to the desk so they are flush with the back of the desk and they sit there so i could plug into that and i bundled all the cords i ran all the cords down like the monitor stands i also got rid of my arm so i had a dual monitor arm and i got rid of that because it was mounted like in the center of my desk and i kind of wanted like less stuff mounted on the desk itself because i've got lights mm -hmm. and other things and so i went back to the monitor stands and these are cool because they're adjustable so i can still move them up and down and anyway, I'm like super, super proud of this. I'm excited with how it turned out. And it took me like two hours this morning, but everything is like very, very neatly tucked away. And I even have, I've got a thing on the back that has like extra USB power outlets on it. And so I ran the cords from the back through this thing that sits on my desk into this drawer. So now you can't see those cords at all unless you open the drawer and I can charge things and just dump them and like leave them in the drawer while they're charging and completely be out of sight, out of mind. Is that right? Anyway, I like super, super proud of this. I spent so much time working on this and surprisingly, like is a huge workout when you're trying to like mount things mm, up, mm -hmm. my shoulders kill. It's like a really, really difficult thing to do when you're holding your arms up and trying to screw in things or like zip tie. There's almost nothing more frustrating in the world 
than having to squeeze cords and try to wrap a zip tie around it while it's up above you. And anyway, so it was fun. I'm proud of it. It looks great. It looks really good. I love how clean your desk is. Yeah, I moved some stuff off that I have now put back to take the picture. <laughs> mm, I see. Yeah, my desk is kind of cluttered right now. Yeah, but it's mainly clean. Yeah, what's interesting about your setup is the gap for your camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, think that would, I don't know if that would bother me a little bit that there's that much of a gap, but I have a ultra wide monitor, so I couldn't mm-hmm. put the camera right there. So I'm just, it's yep. always going to be up a little bit. And that's like back when I was using my webcam, I used to have it mounted above and it just doesn't give the right angle. Right. And someone, Adrian Twarog actually gave me this advice of like, move your camera down to eye level and it'll mm-hmm. look much more personal and yep. all these things. And I just, I don't want to not have that. I used to have the camera off to the side of one of my monitors. That's what I have right now. And that worked pretty well. So yeah, and it is a little weird to have that gap. I also mm-hmm. have like a ring light just hanging on the lens of the camera right now. And the mm-hmm. reason is my coworker, Holly at Planet Scale, I was talking about like how the bags of my eye show and she was talking about like lighting. Oh. And I realized my two Elgato lights are coming from up to down on me so yeah. they cast that shadow and i needed light that was hitting me square on mm. to help get rid of that so i've got that just like hanging here for right now because i don't have a better solution have um, you noticed the comments and <laughs> youtube i haven't they i don't know if, giving I don't, you a hard time <laughs> i don't think i've even published a video since I, it's only been a couple of days that i did that so i don't okay. think i have any content out there this is one of the okay. first things so i guess we can judge comments in the twitch chat you were talking about teleprompter Mm-hmm. Your teleprompter is not in the picture. Correct. I take it off. Okay. Yeah, I don't leave okay. it on because you can see it in the field of view. But, yeah. So I only do it when I absolutely need it and I just take it off. It's sitting to inside of me. Got it. Okay. Jacob Stordahl is asking, is this an autonomous desk? It's a fully desk, which I think is in the autonomous brand. I think they're the same. Let me oh, see. Really? Maybe they're not. Let me. I have an autonomous desk and I have, I think it's like the pro one mm. or whatever okay. so there's like the work from home one which i think that just has one power leg but mine actually has two power mm-hmm. legs so and okay. also just shout out to zeal they paid for it love it as they should so mine is fully and it's jarvis that is i forget the relationship between jarvis and fully but it's a fully desk so it, mine is not autonomous yeah i've really enjoyed mine and i got the widest one there was like the biggest one there is yeah, I did too. I got the absolute biggest one that I could get to. Yeah. Yeah. Scotty in the chat, by the way, thanks for joining us in the question says with all the serverless options these days, does it make sense to use something like express anymore? You have any thoughts? I have not. I have like hardly any experience with express, which I think is awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. What about you? There's a few different scenarios that serverless doesn't traditionally cover. So some of it depends on like your application needs. So one of them is in serverless functions, as far as I know, you can't have like long-standing TCP connections or like socket connections open. So things like if you're listening for real-time updates to something, if you're listening for updates from Discord, like for a Discord bot, you can't do that in traditional serverless environments. Uh, Another thing is if you wanted to send push notifications from your backend to your front-end, through a socket connection with Socket.io, you can't do that either. You may be able to hack that, but like the idea with serverless functions is that they spin up and spin down, so there's nothing like sticking around. So those are a couple of specific use cases that I think still haven't been solved. One of the reasons 
that I've used Express recently also is to have the ability to do cron jobs. So things that run on specific times. You can also do that in GitHub Actions. There's other services that can help you. So you can tie into that. So you could have like your own serverless API endpoint, then have another service that does the cron that calls your API endpoint. So you could do that as well. If you're doing any sort of like in-memory cache type thing, you can't do that with serverless functions because they don't stick around. Oftentimes with serverless functions, you don't have access to your actual file storage. You probably don't need like file system storage most of the time anymore, but it's something to consider. So like you'd have to integrate with something like S3, for example, to do file storage if you needed that versus if you were on an express server in DigitalOcean or whatever, like you have your box, you can access the box and do whatever you want with it. So there's still a couple of use cases there. There's also, I don't know the answer to this, but there's still potentially like performance concerns where you still have cold starts. And I think cold starts are getting smaller and smaller. And cold start is like, you haven't run the function in a while and now it needs to kind of spin itself up completely. It takes some number of milliseconds for that to happen. So that is something you can think about. Another thing is I don't think we have, at least as far as I know, I don't think we have like full control over where serverless functions run from the perspective of can I deploy serverless functions in a bunch of different places easily. So there's a good conversation about like edge functionality and all that kind of stuff. But if I just deploy something to Vercel, I choose a region and that's where my serverless functions live. I don't know what it looks like if I want to also run serverless functions in another region, for example. But if I have an Express app, I could deploy multiple instances of my Express app across different regions have them connect to different databases, for example. Like that's a lot of what the edge is helping us solve, but there's still maybe some flexibility of just having the control over what's going on to give you more control if you have those specific needs. All that said, like I would much rather use serverless than deploy and host and express that myself. The only time I've used it recently was I was trying to do some content scraping and Anya Kubo as mm -hmm. a YouTube video where she talks about setting up an express server to help do that. But the mm -hmm. solution that I ended up going with in the end was a node script. And I just ran that instead of mm. doing the express server. Cause I just yeah. needed to run it locally. It was a lot easier than oh, cool. trying to ping a browser. It could just run mm -hmm. from the terminal. Yep. Is there any reason that you couldn't do that inside of a serverless function? Like that same scraping functionality would work, right? Yeah, you probably could. For what I was doing it, really, I just need to like scrape it and download it to my computer. That was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, or just like run it once and have, I think it was updating sanity. So mm -hmm. it's not like something that had to continuously ping. It was just something where we had an existing website and instead of doing copy paste, copy paste, we just need to scrape the website once and yep. put it into sanity. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. We've got another question from Scotty about... Oh, this is uh, a softball one. I know. I'm <laughs> yeah, like repping my planet scale gear proudly. So the question is, does Prisma work with planet scale? And the answer is, yay, it does. Yes. Um, so like this is like... One of the best ways to interact with yes. planet scale is through Prisma. 100%. So Amy and I are both huge fans yeah. of Prisma. Amy just got back from speaking at Prisma Days, which mm -hmm. I still... I know I told you in chat or whatever, but your talk was great. Like... I was oh, really impressed. Nice. I've never seen you do. I mean, we recorded our talk for Next.js Conf, but this was different. So it, like everything went really, really well. And I loved what you did. So congratulations. But we were both big fans of Prisma. And one of the benefits of Prisma is its ability to work with a lot of different types of databases. MySQL, Postgres, even works with Mongo. I think that is out of beta, although I'm not 100% sure. 
But the point is that works very easy with planet scale. So planet scale underneath the hood is MySQL. And there's like two lines that you include in your configuration when you do your prisma.schema that allows that to work. So that's about it. The reason behind that is planet scale doesn't support specifically foreign key constraints. It's not that it doesn't support foreign keys. It absolutely does. It doesn't support foreign key constraints. So what that is, is like if you have a relationship between author and books and I want to delete the author, sometimes you could have constraints to say, I can't delete an author if that author still has associated book records in the database. So those are some of those constraints that you can do and you could like determine how you want the database to react when you do that. So PlanetScale doesn't support that. And that's an intentional thing. It's not a lack of functionality. It's intentional because it then enables us to do some of the other cool features and things in Vitesse that we have and we get to build on with the PlanetScale product. So yes, short answer is yes, PlanetScale works great with Prisma. And obviously I'm a big fan of PlanetScale, but we're both big fans of Prisma. And that's the way I would recommend people go to enter if you're a JavaScript TypeScript developer to work with PlanetScale anyway. Very cool. I'm glad I got to do that pitch today. Thank you for the setup. I need to get more <laughs> like plants in the audience. Plant more people. Yes. When I do talks or something. You could just create a bot <sighs> and like have the bot have different names each time. Yeah. I'd be like, I've heard of this planet scale thing. Can you tell me <laughs> about it? You could even like set up different messages. So it doesn't seem mm -hmm. like it's the same. Bot every 30 every minutes, time. you get a different message yeah. asking <laughs> something about a key feature There's of planet scale. Planet scale. I love it. And let's take a minute and talk about Vercel. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. We're actually hosting the compressed.fm site and my personal site, selfteach.me on Vercel. They also power more well-known sites like Twilio, but you can use them for e-commerce, travel, news, and marketing sites. You name it, they can host it. When I got ready to launch the compressed site, it was super easy. I pointed it to the GitHub repository and told it what folder my next.js project was in, and then it just worked. Ridiculous, right? But they also power over 30 plus Jamstack frameworks, including Create React App, Next, Nuxt, Vue, Ember, Svelte, Angular, Hugo, and Gatsby, just to name a few. But one of my favorite features is when you set up your account, you get your own dashboard, and here you can invite other team members to collaborate or view analytics. So as soon as I push the code to my GitHub repository, it deploys that code and I can watch the build and its entire process through their custom dashboard. So be sure to check out Vercel. I'll include a link in the show notes, but special thanks to Vercel for being a Compress.fm sponsor. Speaking of little scripts, I wrote something just for fun in like 10 minutes of passing a YouTube video ID and it'll give you the URL for the image. Cause it's like, Oh, the thumbnail. That's fun. the thumbnail. It's like a hassle to get the I image. Know. If you don't know exactly what the URL format looks like. You mean you don't love digging through the developer tools and <laughs> trying, trying to find it. So where, like if you're on the YouTube video itself, you would have to go to the head to get the image out of there. Right. Cause it's not actually in the you player. You just got to dig through stuff. Yeah. And Instagram's equally bad too, because they have like overlays, I think for being able to navigate between images mm -hmm. or they have it like as a transparent ping yeah. and it's set as the background image in CSS. You've got to go through and find it. Mm -hmm. One of the easier ways to do that is if you can go over to that, is it the network tab in your dev tools and see all the images that are coming through. Oh, and this yeah. is a little shout out. Yeah, for a, a little shout out. <laughs> yep, yep. We just recorded an episode where we went through all the panels in the developer tools mm -hmm. in Chrome. 
we got another question, by the way. Oh, another I'm, softball. I'm digging it. I'll, I'll <laughs> let you ask it so it doesn't seem like I just made this up myself. So from Scotty again, what is the advantage of using planet scale over a managed service like Firebase or Supabase? Can I try and answer this? This might be fun. Do it. I like it. That's what I feel like we should have a segment of like, like you probably Amy know guesses more. the answer? Yeah. Like you probably know a good amount, but I feel like it would be fun for us to just answer shit that we have no idea about <laughs> and then clarify that we <laughs> clarify that it's not real advice, but yeah, go for it. Yeah, I think I definitely have holes in my knowledge, but I can tell you from my side of it, how I would answer it. So I think planet scale is still managed because you have the database on there, on your server, on their servers. But one of the nice things about PlanetScale or a differentiator is it's MySQL versus like Supabase is running Postgres under the hood. But one of the advantages of PlanetScale is they have a branching feature. So if you are making changes or updates or things like that, you can branch it just like you would your code and then you can merge that back in. How'd I do? Nailed it. Yeah. There's lots of really cool stuff. So to your point about manage and we actually like our internal language is a little interesting because so there's two ways you can have planet scale. You can have it where we actually host it for you on our AWS account. The other one is what we call manage where it's on your company's AWS account and we like install it, we support it and blah, blah, blah. There's also the idea of on-prem where it's actually on your own data center, not in AWS or whatever, which we don't do anymore. So manage for us means we help you get everything set up and going and probably do some support, but it's on your AWS account. The other option is it's on our account. So just like you don't have to deploy anything yourself for Firebase or Superbase, you have that option with PlanetScale as well. And then to your point, so a little bit of background on PlanetScale, it's built on top of a product called Vitesse. And Vitesse is where like all the magic happens behind the scenes. But Vitesse was built at Google uh, 10 or 15 years ago or something to support YouTube. And if you think about scaled applications, YouTube is as big as it gets of any product in the entire world. And they are using Vitesse for that. So Vitesse is the underlying technology that the PlanetScale product is built on top of. So a key selling point, not only has MySQL been around for a long time and super, super stable, Vitesse has been around a long time and it can confidently scale to the extent of what YouTube is. And we could have a fun conversation about Database sharding, basically a lot of limitations in database. And I don't know if Superbase does this at scale. I'd be actually really curious to ask them. But here's one of the limitations that you often hit with databases. If you have a database installed on a server, your server can only be so big. It can only have so much memory. It can only have such a high processor, GPU, CPU. It can only have so much disk space. So like a lot of times people scale up. It's just buy a bigger machine and now we can put more stuff on it. But hardware is only so good where you can only do that to a certain extent. And then that's where this idea of cloud really gets into horizontal scaling, where now instead of having just one machine for my database, I could have two, three, four, like scale up horizontally and add more and more machines. The difficulty of that with databases is now how do you manage your data across these different machines? And that's where sharding comes in, where something has to know some sort of like orchestrator layer, orchestration layer has to know if you're trying to access this certain piece of data or you're trying to write this certain piece of data, which of these machines does that piece of data live on? And so PlanetScale on top of MySQL is that layer that supports the orchestration of sharding and setting up the shards and then also distributing requests and queries to the appropriate shard server, et cetera, to then aggregate that stuff and bring it back to you. So the short answer is like the most important feature 
is scale, like absolute scale that if you just host Postgres by yourself, you don't get that, right? Because you would be hosting it on the one machine by yourself. If you had to then shard that, that's your responsibility to figure out how. I don't think Superbase does sharding, although I'm not 100% sure. So then some of the features that Vitesse enables is database branching, like you said, Amy. So just like you create branches in your code, you can do that with your database. And then we have zero, what's the phrase? Not zero downtime, but there's like a slightly different variation. It's basically zero downtime migrations, where when you do migrations, big schema migrations can actually bring your database down for a long time. But behind the scenes, what we do is actually create another database and like apply the schema changes there and copy all the data over and then just switch when it's ready. So there's actually no interruption to your application. There like is milliseconds of interruption. It's zero downtime migrations where your database is never down or at least not to you perceivably down while you're doing these migrations. And that's a big one as well. There's other cool features, but that's a lot of it. Now, Superbase and Firebase. One of the downsides about Firebase, which is why things like Superbase exist, is the vendor lock-in. So like you're locked into Google, you're locked into hosting on their platform. Superbase, you can host on Superbase. You can also host on your own. And then some of the benefits is having all the stuff built in, authentication, file storage, all those things that Superbase and Firebase give to you is definitely a nice benefit. And that's why I'm a fan of those products as well. We have a list of words on our refrigerator that you should not say. And I feel like shard should be added to that list. <laughs> Because of because it sounds <laughs> bad or because we don't want to talk nasty. about database. Yeah. It sounds nasty. Yeah. Well, that's why Planet Scale does it for you. So you don't have to worry about it or talk about it. Perfect. Yeah. That makes a nice little pitch for Planet Scale. Mm -hmm. for, don't like shards or sharding. <laughs> we'll do it for you. That's yeah. yeah. That's basically it. Like that's a big part of it. Oh man. This is fun. I think we should do more of this. I enjoyed it. Yeah, more of this. And let us know if you <laughs> like our random discussions. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like this is grab bag questions on the fly. Mm -hmm. All right. That's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed it, make sure to leave a rating and a review to help other people find the podcast. And the next episode, we're going to talk about something. I have no idea, but we will catch you next time. Thanks as always for listening, depending on where and when, but that's all we got.